Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thank you very much for being on the show, Ben. I am so excited to have you on. Quite a while ago, I ranked the Merovingian monarchs from worst to best, and now we are going to do the same with the Carolingian monarchs. And here I have a slightly different Ben than the last one that was on. (laughs) Last time we had Ben from uh, Thugs and Miracles. Um, Unfortunately, I have not been able to get a hold of Ben. We hope you're doing well. However, there is another Ben who is doing a French history podcast, not the French history podcast, but a French history podcast. Ben, could you please introduce yourself and your podcast? Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Ben Clark, uh, or Backup Ben, as I guess I am on this podcast. Um, You've been upgraded. (laughs) You are primary Ben. Um, yeah, I host the podcast Battle Royale, where we pass judgment, uh, me and my friend uh, Eliza pass judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France. Very similar to if you've ever heard of the podcast Rex Factor, that's kind of who we're based on. They do the same thing with the British monarchs. But basically, our entire job is to rank the monarchs and give them all ratings in, in different categories. And then at the end of each episode, we decide whether or not they deserve the guillotine or whether they get to go to a final playoff tournament where we decide who's the best one. So, yeah, we've we've done all the Carolingians already. We, uh, we're about uh, halfway through the direct Capetians. We just released Louis VII, um, which was an interesting one, definitely. Um, and we did we did a special one on Eleanor of Aquitaine as well. So go check that out if you if you want to jump straight in or you can go back and listen to all the old ones we go all the way back to clovis so yeah absolutely and i will include a link to your show and i want to thank you for providing your voice to my norman conquest episode you read one of the quotes So I have to start out this episode by admitting that the title of the episode is a bit of a lie. We are not just ranking the Carolingian monarchs. I am hoping to eventually, however long this podcast may take, rank all of the leaders of France. And so for in order to do that, we are also going to include... Charles Martel in our list, who was not the king of France, but he basically was. I mean, he was king in Mm -hmm. all but name. So we're including him. We are also ranking the usurper monarchs who came into power from Odo going just before Hugh Capet. So basically, this episode is going to... Carolingians and Robertians. 
Carolingians and other. We'll just put it out there. But <laughs> if I put that, if I put that in the title, people would be less likely <laughs> to click on it. You got to put something. Either you're going to do at least a respectable title, which I like to do. So it'll be ranking the Carolingians. Or if you want people to click, you have to be something like, you won't believe what we have to say now. <laughs> so in any case, that is what we are going to do today. Now, the way that I have ranked them is based on a specific criteria that includes their military prowess, their economic management, cultural development, state management, and then how this translated into long-term stability. Did you have a similar metric for how you ranked them? Um, ours are quite different because most of the things that you just said are lumped into one category, which we call voulez-vous, uh, which in French means, would you, do you want to, uh, as in, do you want to live under this monarch? Mm. Um, so that's like an entire category is like, how, how nice was it to live under? Did they do good things for France? That sort of thing. Um, we also have an, we also have the on guard category, which is how much they, uh, got personal power for themselves. Um, and our other categories are, are, are very different. They're, um, they're more based on like how interesting a person he was rather than how effective he was at a monarch. So I guess, we, we're using a slightly different metric. So we have the enchanté category, which is how iconic they are, like how great is their image that's and legacy that's gone throughout history. And we have the ooh-la-la category, which is how scandalous and saucy and HBO-worthy their life was. And um, we also have uh, La Vie on Throne, um, which is a play on La Vie on Rose, uh, which is how long they spent on the throne and how many children they had. So um, pretty much, uh, yeah, another uh, thing about legacy, I guess. So I guess we're sort of more, we're sort of less about the uh, historical uh, rigorous academic detail than we are about um, just judging people and uh, deciding if they're interesting or not. Well, uh, that's fun then. I think we'll have, we might have uh, quite an, different list yeah with I me going so. more for perhaps who was the best ruler and yours perhaps doing the most interesting ruler so having said that how about we jump in and we go from the worst monarch all the way up to charlemagne i mean whoever <laughs> possibly <laughs> would be number say. one <laughs> That's yes. the thing about uh, ranking the Carolingians. It's it's a bit. It feels like a bit of an exercise in futility because uh, there's one that everyone sort of thinks. Although although these days, I, I guess there is there is more of an argument for the other uh, Charleses and um, maybe even a Pepin in there. But we'll, we'll see. We shall see. And I'm pretty excited about this because as great as the last episode was, and I very much enjoyed ranking the Merovingians. But with the Merovingians, I think about half of them, what the other Ben and I would say was, yeah, he existed. And that was pretty <laughs> much it. Because... Yeah, it's pretty pitiful. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot a lot of like points that we give our monarchs are to do with like they'll they'll get a point for like a fact that we know about them. So like if they had a scandalous divorce, they'll probably get two points for that. Um so 
when we have very few sources and not much information, um, they're only picking up like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten points in total. Um, and so we have a we actually have a graph on our website which shows our scores all laid out next to each other, and it goes like uh, Clovis, uh, Clovis, Clothar. And then a couple of the other ones are, get up to like 50 and then it severely drops off all the way down to um, Charles Martel. <laughs> I imagine that, yeah, because essentially it's not just that we lack a lot of information about them, which is unfortunate, but because half of the Merovingians were Huafenon, being the mm-hmm. do-nothing kings, they really didn't exercise much, if any, power. Whereas for... Or did the- they? Well, okay. <laughs> we're doing the Carolingians, so we won't go too much into that, other than to say that with the Carolingians, there was perhaps only one king that was really a do-nothing king. And the others, I mean, there are some that they might have died young, but they mm. at least had some power. Yeah. So with that said, how about we jump in and you tell us what is your absolute worst monarch between Charles Martel and then uh, Louis V being the very last one. So just before Hugh Capet, we are ranking essentially all the kings of France, are the leaders of Francia, then the leaders of West Francia, essentially anyone who ruled over that area that would become France, from Charles Martel to Louis V. So who is your worst? So our worst is uh, Carloman I, which might be a bit interesting. Uh, I think we we both saw that Carloman I, you know, had a lot of potential, um, but he had the unfortunate curse of being Charlemagne's younger brother, who was basically like, pushed aside at, at every turn. Um, even his own mother seemed to prefer Charlemagne and was working with various Frankish vassals to to give power to Charlemagne. So Carloman uh, basically squared up to fight his brother, which is a fight that he probably wouldn't have won. And before he could, he supposedly had a nosebleed and died. And it was not a very long reign. So... Uh, yeah, it, it it wasn't it wasn't that great. I definitely agree. He was not the most interesting monarch, and he wasn't uh, one of the better monarchs. I have him fairly low, but I I agree. He was not a great king. He seemed to be a pretty mediocre king who died young. Um, he one point that I have in his favor is he did with his brother put down a revolt in Aquitaine, and that seems to be something of a catalyst for their disagreement because they disagreed on what would be done with Aquitaine afterwards, which led Carloman to essentially run off in a huff. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the only interesting thing I know about Carloman. And then, of course, he possibly had that brain aneurysm or somehow mysteriously died, making way for a very interesting figure to take power. But Carloman is not on the bottom of my list. The bottom of my list is Charles the Simple. Now, he might be much higher on yours. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Because he's more interesting, 
I suppose. Yes, he's but, very interesting. <laughs> but in terms of his actual rule, he, in my opinion, he actively did more harm to West Francia than than good. Uh, he was one of three monarchs during this period that I ranked as having a negative effect on West Francia. And it's funny because his reign started off somewhat strong. He held off Viking attacks. He tried to take Lotharingia, and he did for a while, although the nobles wouldn't recognize him, so he couldn't consolidate it. But then the rest of his reign just really went downhill. He had to cede the county of Rouen to Rollo in 911. He repeatedly gave away more power to his aristocrats. He invaded mm -hmm. Lotharingia again, but failed. He failed to stop Viking, Muslim, and Magyar raids. And then, of course, he had his, uh, I won't say love affair, but his doting upon the noble Hagano, giving him yeah. so many important things, which resulted in his other nobles turning on him. And then eventually he dies in prison from one of his vassals. So he was someone who he tried to be a great king, and he seems to have failed at every turn. Now, having said that, I, I'm guessing he's going to possibly even be in your top five because of how interesting <laughs> he is. But for yeah. me, just as just as a ruler, I think he's he has to be the worst ruler of all the Carolingians. Interesting. I guess in that case, like him being around for a long time is a is is a big negative for you um whereas it's something that we give points for because i think we're we're more interested in like the king surviving and and uh leaving a mark than we are in uh <laughs> we're benefiting the country which is only one of our categories um but uh i will i mean i i will fight i will try to fight in charles the civil's quarter a little bit because you're you're right he is number five on our list um you could argue that that giving Ruan to Rollo was a was a a good move that because it did help fend off other Vikings and and it did create in a way the Norman culture which I think was a net positive for France as a whole. Um, but I don't know what do you what do you think about that? So I actually agree that I think it was a smart decision to cede the county of Rouen, but I'm just saying that even though it was a smart decision, it was a sign of his weakness. And it wasn't the only sign of his weakness because he gave more power to Ramnolf, the Duke of Aquitaine, more power to Richard le Justicier as Marquis mm. of Burgundy. And so it was just a mark that he was not this powerful king that he thought he was. And when he tried to assert his power, he ended up getting his butt kicked over and over again. So that is my yeah. only uh, only comment on that. And the funny thing about the seating of the county of Rouen, first of all, I think a lot of people mistakenly think that he ceded Normandy to the Vikings, which is not what happened. He just ceded a small territory around Rouen. And, and this was supposed to be temporary. But the problem is Charles and his successors were so weak or they yeah. were or they were actually allied with the vikings because all of their other vassals had turned on them 
that what was supposed to be temporary became permanent. So it was a complex thing. And I actually do think it was smart. But either way, I just don't like Charles. So he is my absolute <laughs> worst Carolingian monarch. So Look, I'm not going to fight too hard for him. But, but um, yeah, I guess all of these regional rules, they're always meant to be temporary at first, aren't they? Like uh, Robert the Strong was, came into... Um, uh, sort of uh, Western France as, as the Mrs. Dominicus, and then he ends up being the Duke of the entire area. Um, that's always that's always how it starts, and then it sort of snowballs from there. Or the um, opposite: what's supposed to be permanent ends up being temporary. Hmm, so, yeah. but yeah, Charles any... Simple. I, I mean, sorry, I'm not to like go on about Charles Simple more because oh, he's please. very interesting to me. I find him as a, uh, like such a fascinating figure, especially because we have so much on him. But um, he he seemed more interested in taking over Lotharingia than he did actually ruling uh, France. And uh, the, the, at one point in, uh, I think, our episode on him, I observed that uh, he, he, he loves going to Lotharingia and ruling in Lotharingia. Um, but the, the, the French are really annoyed that he's always there. And the Lotharingians are also really annoyed that he's always there. <laughs> Because they've been used to ruling themselves. And not only that, you know, this is, I think, his great flaw, is he thought he was greater than he was. He thought he was Charlemagne. He thought he could yeah. rule over this vast realm. But on the one hand, there's the West Franks who were mad at him because he's favoring this weirdo, this no-name Lord Hagano. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, in Lotharingia... He alienated nobility there um, and in West Francia by failing to stop these raids from these various groups. So in fairness, it was a different time. There was yeah. increased attacks from abroad, but he bit off way more than he could chew. And then he ended... Uh, he didn't even have a good end because you would hope at least to, for a tragic figure that he would die in battle or something. But he essentially, at the end of his reign, he was without any friends. And so he sent out messengers to people and said, hey, I'm your king. And then Count <laughs> Eribert of Vermandois said, OK, I'll recognize you. And he fell for it. And then he got captured. And then he spends the rest of his life in prison. So he was... He was not as great or as smart and probably not as good looking as he thought he was. <laughs> so that's why he's my, the last on my list. Yeah, interesting. There, there's, a, there's a line from um, Game of Thrones where uh, Tywin Lannister says to King Joffrey, anyone who has to say I am the king is no true king. Absolutely. And mm. that pretty much sums up Charles the Simple. So moving on. Who is your second worst Carolingian monarch, Ooh. or perhaps least interesting might be the, well, however I'm, you want to rank it. I, I guess I'm just crapping on the Carlemans at the top of this episode, because our second worst is Carloman the second. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Um, honestly, it was very, very hard to find stuff on Carloman the second. I think that's partly why he struggled um in the in the ranking um but also he really was just second fiddle to his brother louis the third 
And after Louis the Third, and because they were co-rules, of course. And this is this is um, to put it in context for the listener. This is just after um, uh, was it was it before Charles the Fat or after Charles the Fat? I can't remember. So in the list, so Louis uh, the Third and Carloman take over after Louis the Second, the Stammerer, and then the Louis the Third right. and Carloman the Second preceded uh, Charles the Fat. Yes. So yeah, they both die in mysterious hunting accident, or, or uh, Carloman dies in a hunting accident. Uh, Louis dies in uh, chasing a maiden and getting hitting his head on a, a lintel. One of two. One story. French monarchs <laughs> yeah. who would die that way. Hitting his head on the lintel, yeah. And then Carloman is one of like 50 <laughs> who dies in hunting. There, there are three Carolingians who, I believe, who die in hunting accidents, if I'm not wrong. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, Carloman II, there's just honestly not much I can say about him. Uh, but yeah, maybe you have a different take. So it's interesting that you have the Carlemans as your bottom. I don't have them at the bottom. They're kind of mid-tier, but yeah. I do have them together, actually. Carloman and oh. Carloman uh, II, uh, both in succession, because I agree, they pretty much didn't do much of anything. I mean, both Carlemans were essentially the second fiddle to their greater brothers. Carloman mm-hmm. I being second fiddle to Charlemagne, and he dies suddenly probably of a brain aneurysm, and Charlemagne is this glorious ruler. And then Carloman II, he is the co-ruler with Louis Third, who wins this amazing battle against... Yeah the Vikings, which is commemorated in the Ludwigslied, this epic poem. And then Carloman dies at the age of 18 in a hunting accident. Mm-hmm. So there isn't really much to say about either of the Carlemans other than they were the shadow of much greater monarchs. Yeah. So I understand why they didn't make the top of your medieval people mag- magazine. So, <laughs> also, also, um, oh, you're ma- you're making our podcast sound really frivolous, which it, which it is. <laughs> so oh, I'm glad well. we have that. I'm glad we have that reputation uh, because well, what is- I don't think People Magazine is frivolous. I think that is some slander right there. Oh, good, good. I, I I'm not too familiar with with American magazines, but um, it is uh, the. Readers- I think I'm thinking of. I must be thinking of Cosmopolitan or something. Yes, um, this is very high literature where we are. I don't know what's going on in Edinburgh. <laughs> um, Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots 
the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. But, uh, yeah, Carlman second. I think we also kind of marked him down for not being able to subdue uh, Bozo of Provence. Um, I think that was also a bit of a point against him. Because that was, in his case, a rebellion that didn't he didn't put down. Um, yeah, he was a, a mediocre monarch. Although, I mean, as a human being, I suppose I can give him a little slack since he died at the age of 18. But as a monarch, he was just not a very great figure. So I understand why the Carlemans are at the bottom of your list. They're certainly a very meh figures in my Mm. list, but they are the Carloman. The second is not the second worst. So my second worst is Louis d'Autremer, otherwise known as Louis from overseas because he spent his childhood in the court of, I believe it was Alfred of Wessex. Mm-hmm. He began oh, was, as uh, Athelstan, I believe. Athelstan. Oh, Athelstan. Okay, it's see. Later, yeah. See, I will try to be as accurate as I can with French history, but if I get something wrong with English, <laughs> English history, history, don't yeah, be ashamed. <laughs> yeah, 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 we're gonna we're gonna mark that off. But um, <laughs> he began as a puppet of Hugh the Great, who summoned him back from England to take the throne. He didn't speak French when he came to the country. He spoke English. And in his defense, he did try to be an independent and great king. The problem, though, was that he did so by trying to fight against his vassals. And Mm -hmm. I understand that in order to be a king in this age, sometimes that's what you had to do. But he brought a lot of bloodshed and he ultimately failed. He failed to subdue Hugh the Great. He engaged in a large-scale coalition with Otto I from the King of uh, East Francia, the King of Germany, or Mm -hmm. I guess we could say the precursor, the German lands, uh, Conrad, King of Burgundy, and Arnulf, Count of Flanders, to attack West Francia, caused a lot of devastation, but ultimately, they were defeated, even though they largely outnumbered their rivals. And he finally yeah. died. Speaking of hunting accidents, he died while chasing a wolf through a forest and then falling from his horse. So he brought a lot mm. of destruction and devastation to the country he ruled, trying to be a strong ruler, but ultimately failing and then dying at a fairly young age he was in his 30s when he died i believe so yeah Yeah. i see him as being someone who like charles he tried to be great but he vastly overestimated his own prowess so for me he is second from the bottom how about you is he higher up with you I assume, well, he has to be, but I mean, just how high? Yeah, but he, he's he's only two places high for me. Um, oh, really? So, so in this one, we're, we're in more agreement. Um, I think, 
yeah, he was definitely, in a way, he was sort of set up to fail um, being raised in exile in Athelstan's court because, um, I mean, Athelstan is is one of the greatest kings in English history. Um, so in that way, he had this this good example. But Athelstan was ruling an England that was a lot more centralized than France, and in a way, he was setting his his bar too high for for how I guess how good his vassals were going to be. And he he I don't think he expected uh, um, th- this is a lot of conjecture, but I don't think he expected Hugh the Great to be as uh, domineering um, as he ended up being. Uh, I think we gave him uh, the the main thing we gave him credit for was was marrying Gerberga of of Saxony, who at the time of their marriage was the widowed Duchess of Lotharingia, and she brought a lot of strength. And she was the sister of the King of Germany, but at the same time, that was also a double edged sword because with her came the the dominant presence of Germany in France, as in literally their armies in France helping. Louis fight, which down the line caused a lot of problems. Um, so yeah, I think we, I think we sort of agreed that. And in terms of interestingness, he was pretty. He wasn't as interesting as Charles the Simple, so he didn't get that that boost, I guess. All right. Well, I'm glad we can <laughs> at least agree on that. So <laughs> let's go on to the next one. Who is your third from the worst? Uh, third that from, is yeah. that is Louis the Fifth. Louis the uh, Fifth, the last Carolingian. Um, I mean, this one's pretty straightforward. I mean, he he was the grandson of Louis the Fourth, so, so son of son of Lothair, and uh, he basically ruled for about five minutes and 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 then just died. Um, his his one saving grace for us was a messy divorce that was really interesting, um, but apart from that, it. Uh, it was pretty pretty dismal. Well, that, and he did try to besiege the holiest person in France, the Archbishop of Hans. That so is true, yeah. Is... That, I, I mean, I see, I see that as sort of doubling down on what Lothair was already doing. Like, he didn't, I don't know, he, he doesn't strike me as somebody who had a lot of agency. True, I agree. And, you know, we are finding ourselves slightly in more agreement because he's actually my next person. But my third choice here and the last king that I have who gets a negative score is actually uh, Lothair, his father. Right. So in, in my opinion, so this guy, he takes the throne at 13 and those in power wanted him to be a figurehead and to his credit, he tried to be a powerful monarch. But again, the story is that he failed. He tried to take Lotharingia. He raided the Imperial palace, but this didn't bring about lasting results. Instead, it just caused Otto II to attack West Francia, forcing Lothair to renounce claims to Lotharingia And not only that, but at the peace table, Lothair made it even worse by not inviting Hugh the Great, which antagonized him. And then he ended up fighting a losing war against both Hugh and then another one to reinvade Lotharingia. So he brought a lot of blood and death to the realm and didn't accomplish much of anything, if not actually losing out. 
So for mm-hmm. me, Lothair is the third guy, and then I have Louis V. So we almost lined up for a second. <laughs> we, we always did it. Um, yeah, well, uh, it's a shame we're not, we're not doing uh, Hugh the Great in this list, are we? Um, no. Because he's, he's popping up quite a bit as, a, as, as the foil to these kings. Um, but yeah, I think Lothair is kind of, I mean, Lothair is kind of an extension of his dad, Louis IV's problems with Hugh the Great. And then, and then Louis V is sort of an extension of Lothair's problems with the Archbishop, which, you know, obviously the Robertians are known for their, their piety and, and, and that sort of, uh, as well as their military prowess is what, is what gets Hugh, Hugh Capet on the throne after Louis V dies. But yeah, it's, uh. Lothair, honestly, I, I, again, Lothair is one of those ones that off the top of my head, I, I couldn't tell you much about because um, his reign was a bit of a wash. Um, Absolutely. As far as just to comment on the Hugh the Great thing, I definitely agree that Hugh the Great was often the most powerful man in France. The problem, though, is that he didn't claim to rule over all of France. That's the yeah, thing. That's I mean, he yeah. was regionally such an incredible power but he what he wasn't the guy so mm. we're going to have to we'll keep Charles Martel but we're not going to include Hugh the Great just for those mm. arbitrary reasons so in in so in our uh in our like decisions about who we include we we have a hard and fast rule of they must be the french monarch so we don't actually include Charles Martel in our official list which we'll get to later but um we we do we do what's called in betweeny episodes where we will rate uh, people who were either almost essentially the ruler of France or were just very interesting and big at the time, but we can't really get away with not talking about them. Um, so yeah, Hugh the Great was one of those um, as well. So we do have a ranking of him, but but we, I won't be talking about him today. <laughs> Well, fantastic, and yet another reason to check out your podcast, but back to mine. So, (laughs) fourth person on your list, we're going up, and we're going from worst to best. Is the next person at least decent? Who who is it? Ours is Louis IV, uh, is our fourth worst. Really? Why why Louis IV? Uh, Pretty much for the reasons that that you said, um, Louis IV before. I mean, he had he he had a lot of the same issues that Charles Symbol had, without being quite as interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, it's interesting how we are uh, kind of starting to line up because yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. You know, for me, Louis was second to worst. Now I have Louis the fifth. So we're we're kind of starting to sync up a little. I'm very. I'm very excited to see who your next pick is because I think we might possibly get on board with this. So who is your next guy? Louis the Stammerer is our next Oh, guy. oh, you're one off from me. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> who is yours? Charles the Fat. Charles the Fat. Oh, interesting. Okay, so Charles the Fat is not far away. Okay. Um, well, let's talk Louis the Stammerer. So why is he next on your list? Oh, poor Louis the Stammerer. Um, I mean, he, he didn't have much of a chance. So he he was the son of Charles the Bald, which is which is a hard act to follow, I guess, because Charles the Bald reigned for a very long time, did a lot of things, 
became emperor. Um, and then Louis the Stammerer, he did a pretty good job taking things over. He had a he had Bozo and and her sister, who was uh, his sister, who was his stepmother, um, to contend with, and he managed to subdue them pretty well. And he, he even he even you know got the Pope to come and do a big council to reform a, a lot of the the clerical issues that were happening in France. But he he died very quickly into into his reign. Um, he was just too ill, and um, yeah, it's a shame because I I think he would have been decent if he just had the chance. Yeah, I agree that Louis the Stammerer, he was someone who he played the politics game and he played it poorly, unfortunately. He honored some nobles at the expense of others, and then he died a year and a half into his reign campaigning against the Vikings. So he was a mediocre king cut short and was not a very notable person. He definitely Mm -hmm. gets a sort of a meh rating from me, but he wasn't uh, the worst guy. Yeah. I mean, as, as much as I say, like he wasn't given much of a chance, he, he kind of was, um, as, as a young junior king, um, by his father. But unfortunately I, I think he was, he was sort of thrust into some situations that he couldn't cope with. Um, I think at one point he was about 12 years old and he was expected to be the, the, uh, the king of Neustria. And then uh, Robert the Strong shows up with this huge army with these Breton mercenaries and, and takes it over and Louis isn't able to do much. And then after that, pretty much his dad kind of keeps him out of reach of the main fighting that goes on in, in, in Aquitaine primarily um, against the Vikings and against uh, Pepin II of Aquitaine. Um, those are, those, that, that's my main recollection of, of what happens. And Louis leads lead a very short-lived rebellion that Robert the Strong, of course, puts down because by this time, um, Robert the Strong is basically Charles the Bald's uh, sort of crony. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's, and, and so it, it does look like you know, if he'd been given more of a chance, he would have done better. Maybe, but we we don't know. That's the thing. And interestingly, I think you and I went on completely opposite directions in that here you pick Louis the Stammerer, who was very unlucky, but possibly competent if he got to rule longer. Whereas I went with Charles the Fat, who was the <laughs> luckiest man in existence, but who was not really that competent. Here was someone who, through a series of deaths, inherited an entire empire. It was truly phenomenal how yeah. he got his start ruling over one realm, and then just through sheer coincidence, all of his relatives drop dead, and suddenly he retakes Charlemagne's empire. But as far as what he did in West Francia, and just for clarification, even though he ruled over this great empire, I'm only going to rank him on what he did for the area that we would call France. He paid off the Vikings who were attacking Paris and had them raid Provence. So positive being that he he gets the Vikings away from Paris, but then he does a lot of damage to another area in West Francia. 
He tried to get the local lords to love him by issuing a flurry of capitularies, but he was just not a likable guy, and he seems to be an awkward person, and everybody recognized it because he was this guy only came into power through happenstance, and he did not ingratiate himself well with the local populace, and he would eventually be overthrown in... Uh, Germania in the eastern part of his empire. So he was a very lucky guy who tried, but he was not a very great individual. And so that's why I have him at number 13. Yeah. I mean, the 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 most infuriating thing about Charles the Fat as it relates to France was his his tardiness, which is where he gets his name from, obviously. Um where he didn't show up to this huge Viking siege of Paris, which is like the siege of Paris, that's the most famous one, um, until eleven months into the siege. By which, at which point, he he kind of capitulated and let the Vikings raid further up the Seine, um, l- let them raid the the bishopric of Saint, and it was just so we we were so infuriated at him for that because. Uh, Odo had gone to all of this trouble to make sure that they wouldn't give the Vikings an inch, that, they, that this would, um, you know, this would be sort of a last great stand uh, for them. And Charles the Fat comes in, sure, with this army that could defeat the Vikings, but then he doesn't actually defeat them. He he capitulates. And so that's my rant about, about Charles the Fat. No, he was not a great warrior (laughs) like some of his Carolingian predecessors. So that's why he's my 13. So who is your number 12? My number 12 is um, Louis III. Louis III. Which might be a bit controversial. Um. I mean, similar similar deal to his dad, Louis the Stammerer, where he just wasn't around very long. Um, in his case, he gets quite a bit, uh, quite a few more points um, for his great battle. Um, uh, I, I, I honestly can't remember the name of the battle, but it was the Battle the... of Sacroix en Vimeux. Yes, that's why I couldn't remember it. Um, uh, but it, it is the it is the basis for the the Ludwig's uh, the Ludwig's lead, which is a a very famous um, uh, sort of high Germanic poem. Um, is it high Germanic or is it? It's Germanic. One um, of the you know what we're only doing French history. We don't have to be accurate with German or English history. Yeah, but yeah, so. Aside from that battle, he really doesn't have much to his name, he, and he has pretty much the same problems as his brother Cullum and the second did, but just just did basically an inch better than that. That's interesting. I rank him much higher because of his legendary battle, although granted, he was uh, cut short. What's interesting is that beyond just the the famous battle that he won. I have him, he subdued much of the breakaway Provence. Not only that, but he was very well loved. So he was, he was kind of like the John F. Kennedy of his time. Mm. If you can, to make a very bad historical comparison. So for that reason, I have him much higher. 
My number 12 is actually Robert the first, Robert the first, basically because he was not around for long. He stood up to Charles the simple and he very briefly became king leading that rebellion, but then he dies in battle. So for that reason, he's my number 12. Yeah, Robert the First is a is a fascinating one in that he wins and yet dies. It, it, it's such a big twist, and I, I, I definitely I definitely milked that aspect of his life in in our episode where suddenly the episode was cut short. And Eliza, who's you know Eliza, doesn't look at any of the history before we do the episode, so she's sort of doing a cold reaction to it every time. And um, it was it was the it was one of the most fun episodes to record record because I. I teased that this battle was really important, but hadn't actually said what happened. And um, she wasn't expecting him to just immediately die. Um, but he was fighting at the age of sort of 60 or something. So um, he shouldn't have been there. <laughs> shouldn't have been right in there um, to begin with. It seems like a bit of a hazard. Um, it was a very heroic old geezer. Um, but his son, Hugh the Great, sort of pulled through. And I guess he's sort of the, the real victor. Indeed. So, moving on, uh, your number 11. Um, yeah, so, um, well, my if I might spoil it a bit, my next three are Charles the Fat, Lothair, and Robert. So, oh, okay. So, so um, not to cover the same ground, but um, yes, yeah, so that's 11, Oh, no, that's perfectly fine. You know, I think we <laughs> might be covering much of the same ground for a bit. So my next ones are Louis the Stammerer, Carloman and then Carloman the second. So right. I believe so we basically I think covered all the same, which brings mm. us to number eight. So we yes. might start to get into some very controversial territory with oh, who yes. makes it into your uh, top list since we're in the top eight. So who is your number eight? Um, yeah, so it's interesting. So, so so far we've covered all uh, mostly people who either outstayed their welcome or weren't around long enough to to do much. Um, and I think this is the first king that that doesn't do either of those things. Mm. And that is uh, for me, it is Rudolph. Or oh, really? I, I, don't, I don't know which name that you use for for Rudolph, but we call him Rudolph. Um, I can I called it Rodolf, but you know either one. You know <laughs> yeah, it's, we it's, can it's... we can be as French as we want. When we started this episode, though, I was slightly triggered when you said guillotine because oh I'm sorry about that. <laughs> that's, that's perfectly fine. You know there are some things I won't insist someone say croissant or Paris, but when I yeah. hear guillotine, that kind of drives me crazy. That's the uh, that's the Australian <laughs> pronunciation, unfortunately. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. Um, so tell us why you're number eight. So, uh, so he's he's just um, I don't know. He was just pretty decent at sort of keeping, like keeping the the balance basically of all of these tricky things that he had to juggle. He didn't want to be king. He didn't ask for it. But he uh, uh, sort of he he really um, what's the word? He he rose to the challenge. Yeah. yeah. Per- persevered. Persevered. And he was running around like crazy in, in all of these lands that he, you know, hadn't, had never expected to have to rule over because he, he'd only just inherited the, the Duchy of Burgundy when suddenly Robert died in battle and, and, and Hugh the Great and uh, 
I think it was I think it was Herbert of Vermandois where uh, duking it out, and he was basically Rudolph was basically the compromise candidate. Um, which, um, if any listeners know American politics, they'll know all about what a compromise candidate is. Oh boy! <laughs> um, but yeah, so he 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 did really well with yeah he got a very good um, on on guard score uh, the fighting score because he. He had some very significant wins against the Vikings, and um, he managed to get a lot of them sort of converted and and settled. So, um, yeah, th- th- those are the main things I remember about Rudolph. So that's interesting. I actually ranked him as my number five, and maybe this is just because I <laughs> I like a fighter. I like someone who. He was put in such a difficult position because he inherited a kingdom with so many problems, and yet yeah. he fought off the Vikings, the Magyars, and by all accounts, he was very good at what he did. And because he was able to put down these attacks, he ended up winning the allegiance of the Normans and the Aquitanians, who had been pushing towards autonomy. Having said that, he when he fought against Heinrich the Fowler, he who was king of the germans he Mm. was defeated although he didn't uh, cede west frankish territory he just lost lotharingia or wasn't able to take it so he was a decent king and someone who managed to hold on at a time when very few could so i have him ranked as number five i have him ranked much higher for me, and I know this will probably be very, very controversial, but for my number eight is actually Louis the First, Louis the Pious. Oh, he's my seventh. Oh, oh, wow! <laughs> so we we are both in the in the sort of Louis, not Louis haters, but Louis downplayers camp. They could have been better, but yeah. um, yeah. So in the case of Louis. What's interesting is that he starts off strong. He repels the Vikings from Frisia. He puts down revolts by Slavs and Bosques, and he aids Christians in Sardinia. He continues the Carolingian Renaissance. He builds great palaces. Uh, One negative, though, is he destroys a lot of Germanic artifacts and texts which his father had accumulated so we lose a lot of the old history thanks to him and he went on a moral crusade at court which dampened the art and absolutely killed Carolingian humor I have a whole episode on what made the Franks laugh and basically I don't know if you've heard that episode uh, if not, I'll have to yeah, kick you sorry. kick you off this interview. <laughs> but basically, he thought that laughing was something that people shouldn't do, that it was beneath him. So he absolutely ruined humor for a while. But aside from just that, the second half of his reign really takes a huge downturn. First of mm. all, because with his heavy hand against his nobles, He turned many of them against him. And then once his sons become of age, they find that there are all these nobles that don't like Louis. And so suddenly they can revolt against their father and succeed in tearing apart the empire. So even though his first reign was a fairly decent continuation of Charlemagne's, 
he really dropped the ball in the second half and all of the repercussions of his bad decisions ended up tearing apart this great empire. I think, um, I guess since I'm ranking Louis slightly higher, I I have to play devil's advocate for him. So, but I, I think the, the common argument for why Louis the pious is, is sort of not so bad, um, is, the fact that Charlemagne's empire was never, it was, it was never meant to continue existing as it existed under Charlemagne. Like even at the end of his reign, Charlemagne was having a lot of difficulties controlling his sons. And um, he had a very, he, he had a very firm idea that, okay, once I die, this is all getting split up. Neither of those things happened because all of his sons died except for Louis Um so it solved one problem in that there was no succession crisis, but it, it sort of kicked the can down the road in terms of how are we going to split this up? Um, so Louis was, Louis was reigning over something that he hadn't been trained to reign. He was trained to be the rule of Aquitaine, which has a very, had a very specific kind of culture that the rest of the Frankish kingdoms didn't necessarily share. And um he, uh, I've lost my train of thought now. Um, no, I can definitely, I definitely agree with you that Charlemagne's empire, it could only be held together by Charlemagne. This was a time <laughs> when politics was personal, and Charlemagne was a giant of a man, both literally in that he was just huge, but also just his character was so overwhelming that mm. I don't blame Louis for failing to hold the empire together. But I think by exacerbating the already existing tensions within the empire, I think it was a lot worse than it had to be. I think that particularly his frequent amendments to his will without Mm -hmm. consulting his sons and saying to one son or another, oh, now you're not going to inherit anything. And now this other son who's a child, he's going to get all your land. Yeah. That wasn't the smartest decision from him. And so that for me is why he ranks lower in fairness. He does rank number eight. I still have him as having a positive impact on the Frankish empire, but those failures mean that he's a bit lower than he could have been. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think there's two, I think there's two big, reasons why he's kind of been you know upheld by historians in the past as as uh you know not as bad as 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 people think um one is that oh well he did a lot of good things for the church he was good good for like church reform but he was reforming the the church to make it stricter and 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 less fun (laughs) so so that's not great in my eyes and um the other thing was, oh, well, he only made all of these poor decisions at the end of his reign because of his wife, Judith, um, influencing him. And it, it's all it's all going to be pinned on her, not on not on the king, as if the king is not an adult who, who makes his own decisions. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the two big reasons why Louis has been historically defended. But of course, now that we have a greater understanding of... Uh, women's roles in history and now that we have we we are less glorifying of of uh people who uphold the church than we maybe used to be um 
I think that's why Louis has had a bit of a reckoning in, in more recent years and people looking down on him a bit more. My big pro for Louis has to be his continuation of the Carolingian Renaissance, though, because the yeah. Carolingian Renaissance as an event was such an unbelievably important period of European history, just this enormous expansion mm -hmm. of science and learning, which occurred largely under Charlemagne, but then continues on under Louis. And for the time that he was able to hold the empire together, I think that that accomplished a lot. And so even yeah. though Louis might have failed on the military front, he gets major points from me on the economic and the cultural front. Yeah. I mean, we know we wouldn't know half the things we know about Charlemagne's reign if it weren't for Louis the Pious's reign, um, him sponsoring the Vita Carli and and all of the great texts that were the historical texts that were produced. Um, so, I mean, even though it was a lot of a lot of it was propaganda, um, it's better than nothing. Looking at it, you later, Merovingians, <laughs> it is better than nothing. That yeah. is correct. So number seven, you had Louis the Pious. Number seven, yeah. I have Louis the Third. So now let's go okay. on to six should be novel for both of us. Ooh. Who is your number six? Oh, no. Ours is Odo. Oh, wow. Me too. We finally oh, finally, agreed. finally at last. Wow. Yeah, I thought, yeah, we, we should. Now that we're getting close to the top five, I think we should be, if not more aligned, at least uh, talking about fewer people. I think um, our number one will probably be the same. Yeah. Odo, yeah, he... It, it, so, so Odo was the first person we've talked about so far on this list who we didn't send to the guillotine. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, there were only there were only four Carolingians who had that honor. Um, not uh, Discounting Charles Martel, who wasn't up for the guillotine by virtue of not being king of France. Um but yeah, so Odo, he, I think a lot of our marks went up for him when, when I read, uh, well, I sort of summarized the entire account of the, of the, the siege of Paris, which is this pretty epic event, um, in, uh, in French history generally. It's, it's a very meticulously documented siege, which is almost, sort of, uh, except for maybe in Charlemagne's reign, it's, it's the first time we've sort of seen that in the definitely in the viking era um and odo he then went on to this was before he was king and then he then went on to have a very similar reign to rudolph where he's sort of running around fixing all the problems and he does end up dying of uh dementia brought on by severe stress so he was not having a very good time but he was being a very decent ruler i think Absolutely. I think that is one of the most exciting episodes on my podcast. I'm guessing it's probably the same with yours. Yeah. The siege alone is a very significant episode and his leadership of Paris was incredible. More than that, though, later on in his reign, he'll hold off Viking attacks. He'll hold off Moorish attacks. And one thing is he knew how to play the political game. One of the criticisms I made about some of the other monarchs was that they believed they were greater than they were. And particularly mm. they would try to conquer Lotharingia and then fail. Yes. In the case of Odo, what he does is he recognizes the King of East Francia, Arnulf as his superior. 
yeah. which doesn't really mean much in practice. It's not like he is uh, yeah. becoming his vassal in any, you know, he's not sending troops there, but by having this humility, he essentially gets the Germans to back off. And yeah. so Odo knows how to play the game. He knows how to keep people in line and he inherits a realm that is under siege and he brings stability to it. So for that reason, he's my number six and wow, we finally agreed on something. <laughs> yeah. Odo's, Odo's kind of the antithesis of Charles the Simple, who's of course kicking around in that period, uh, stirring up trouble. Whereas Charles is very proud and has a, has a big opinion of himself. Odo is very humble and he, he is the, he is the very first in his entire dynasty. He's the first Robertian, who of course are the ancestors of the Capetians. So he he comes out with a really strong start for them. And I feel like I'm a sports co- commentator almost, <laughs> recapping oh, a game or something. Um, uh, and um, yeah, so he really set, set that ball rolling. And I think um, the fact that he was, I mean, he was he was a lay abbot, he, he dressed, in, in a sort of monk-like way, um, as, as do a lot of the Robertians. And uh, he, he he actually didn't have any children, Odo, so it ended, it ended up going to his brother Robert. So um, I, think, I think that sort of sense of like, well, I'm just a sort of caretaker king. I'm not here to establish a grand dynasty. I'm just here to make sure everything goes smoothly. I think that really does Odo a lot of credit. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Absolutely. That's why he's my number six. Now, I mentioned before that my number five was Rudolph. Uh, I called him Rodolph on my podcast. Who is your number five? I'm kind of tense to hear who you have. It's it's Charles the Simple, unfortunately. Really? Um, All right. All right. Why is he number five? Why is he in your top five? I mean, it'll it'll comfort you to know we did still guillotine him. Okay, good. (laughs) But... Uh, as as I said initially, a lot of what it comes down to for us is, uh, I mean, we we rate them on how long they managed to stay on the throne, which Charles the Simple did for quite a while, and I would argue a lot of that was was stretches of peace where where we we don't honestly hear much from the annals about him, which I see as a kind of good thing. So so there is stability for long stretches of his reign even if he gets deposed at the end, if that makes sense. Um, but you could argue that tension's always sort of simmering. And uh, I don't know, maybe you disagree with that. Well, I suppose people will have to listen to your episode and get their take on it because we have a very different opinion on him. I mm. do see your point, though, about having a long reign and how that can be something of a mark in a person's favor 
I would slightly disagree, though. I think that people had just become so accustomed to a Carolingian on the throne, because let's keep in mind that when the Carolingian house eventually falls, it's not because they were overthrown. It's because they literally died out, that the house just ran out of legitimate heirs. So that would be my argument. I would recommend that everyone go listen to your podcast first of all just because it's a good podcast but also you can get a very different take on at least some of the monarchs although apparently we're on the same page on odo let's see if we're on the same page for number four who is your number four uh well my number four was pep in the short oh my gosh we agree we agree. Oh, that's good. Okay. You know, uh, we might be agree on the, the top next. Four. I think the next three are going to be pretty easy then, um, to be honest. But uh, yeah, so Pepper the Short, he did not get the guillotine either. Um, he got through to the tournament. I uh, we generally uh, to the the most easy summary of, of Pepper the Short is that he is mainly known for being Charlemagne's dad. True. Uh, which I think is a is a big disservice to him because I think he's he's very underrated in that he was the first Carolingian to technically become king through negotiations with the Pope, which were very um, uh, very cleverly done. Uh, he he deposed the last Merovingian king in a in a rather nonviolent manner. The Merovingian kind of just <laughs> stepped aside and. Um, yeah, reigned reigned for a while though, uh, not as long as uh, Charlemagne by a long shot. Uh, had lots of kids, you know, perpetuated this dynasty, and yeah, it was it also created the papal states, uh, conquered vast tracts of land. I mean, not as much as Charles Martel, his father, but certainly did an impressive job. And for the interesting factor, there was the famous uh, blood court at Kronstadt. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? The blood court at Kronstadt? Is this one I don't know about? (laughs) So he invited, there was a bunch of rebellious Alamanni lords, and he invited them to a meeting at Kronstadt, and then he put them on trial and ordered them all executed for treason, which is why it's called the Blood Court at Kronstadt. So oh. he might have to go up a little bit in your ranking. So, because- <laughs> I mean, I mean, we did we did mark him very highly um, in terms of interestingness because he did have um, a number of um, interesting legends associated with him. That is one, I, I mean, this comes as a result of me getting better at our research over time. I think past Pep in the Short, um, when I knew I had to do Charlemagne, I think I really got my act together in terms of research. So there are definitely things in those early episodes that I, I definitely missed. Um, well, yeah, but, you uh, know, I think with a name like The Short, which is not exactly <laughs> translates well, it was Le Bref, which means like The Short ruled, not The Short himself. I but thought it you, was that uh, he was he was the younger Pepin. He was Pepin the Younger, as opposed to Pepin the Middle or Pepin the Elder, in, and that kind of got well uh, in French translated a million times or something until it oh uh, well in French <laughs> it's uh, le bref like the yeah. brief. But either way, with a name like the Short, you wouldn't view him as a threatening guy. But he uh, to the Alamanni, he was a pretty brutal guy. So I agree with you. He did a lot of incredible things. 
He suppressed revolts with his brother. He was a very important bureaucrat. Now, this had been set down by his father, Charles Martel, who essentially expanded the church as a means of using it as an administrative arm of his rule. And he continued his work. Pepin actually began before he became king, and actually even before he he took over after his father, as a bureaucrat within his father's apparatus. So he was a very, very mm. good bureaucrat. He was much better essentially at running a state than he was at conquering, which is, I think, really why the Carolingians managed to take power. Yeah. And one other notable thing that I would add to him and add to his legacy that many people might not know about is that he established ties with the Abbasids against the Umayyads. One thing that I've tried to do in my podcast, because we take sort of a bigger view of history and try to connect the French history with what was going on in the world, is I think, unfortunately, a lot of people see this world as diametrically divided between Christians and Muslims when that really wasn't the case. What happened was... Yes course, the Umayyads were the original, uh, or I shouldn't say original, but they were a powerful country. But then the Abbasids take over everywhere but Spain, where the Umayyads still reign. And the Abbasids and Umayyads both say that the other are illegitimate and they hate each other. Hmm. And Pepin sees this and he says, oh, you hate the Umayyads in Spain too. (laughs) And so he makes this uh, great or he starts to make ties with the Abbasids and starts trading with them. And it's actually the trade between the Abbasids and the first under Pepin, but then Charlemagne is going to help fuel the Carolingian Renaissance. So Pepin was a very interesting figure, very good bureaucrat. And I understand why he is your fourth and my fourth. And I'm glad we could agree on that. I also, I, was, uh, I mean, speaking of uh, of your podcast, I really loved your um, your your jihad in Provence episode. I think that was a really good look at a little corner of France that doesn't get often looked at, and and the effects that uh, that Muslims have had in that area that isn't really known about. So that's well, a good episode. If thank you very well. much for plugging my <laughs> podcast on my on podcast. Your podcast. <laughs> that's right. But I just, I just wanted to, I just wanted to say, oh, I listened to that one. Um, and, uh, you know, I, yeah, I will say, no, I will say, I don't know about you, but I'm very, there are certain episodes that I'm very proud of. And I think particularly covering things that people don't know about is one of the most fun things. And I don't yeah. think many people know that for 90 years, there was a Muslim political state in southeast france but there was and so i think that was just fascinating to cover do you want to before we move on is there any particular episode that people really have to listen to that will blow their minds oh uh i mean well pepin is a good one (laughs) because uh we we do encounter a story where he he fights a demon while he's trying to take a bath um (laughs) And then, you know, when he's slain the demon, uh, servants offer to sort of clean up the gore that's left behind. He says, no, it'll just, it'll, it'll wash out. It's fine. (laughs) He just gets back in the bath. (laughs) And um, 
he was very he in all these little stories uh he comes off as a very very cool-headed individual who who kind of wasn't bothered by by all of the uh uh things that the regular mortals were worried about uh he's a he's a fun he's a fun figure but um i mean definitely if you're gonna if you're gonna start in our podcast and you want like off the bat a really uh interesting one that you don't need a lot of uh background for is our fredegund episode near the very start um where we do a special on the uh uh one of the deep dark ages queens who was very ruthless and the uh the archetypical uh evil stepmother um she was very interesting to talk about well i'm gonna leave that for you i think when i covered that it was one of my favorite episodes that whole war between fredegan and brunhilda but we're sticking with your plug so go check out his one on fredegan <laughs> anyway back to our list back before uh yes. we we got to end this love fest so <laughs> number three who is your number three charles the bold Oh, me too. All yeah. right. So we have the same top four. So tell yeah. us why Charles the Bald. So Charles the Bald, uh, so he so he, he he takes over from uh Louis the Pious, and uh he was the he was the favorite son towards the end because he was the only one who was who who hadn't caused him trouble yet because he was basically quite young. Um but yeah, he's he's described as a youth as basically sort of a, a paragon, um, and he's very he becomes very very popular very quickly, um, and uh, he, he he yeah he, he his reign is so so long and so much happens that it's hard to it's hard to quickly summarize it. Um, but yeah, he eventually goes on to to become emperor by conquest, which is quite impressive, um, beating all of his his. Uh, his relatives although although sadly uh he's he is dying at that stage and, and things go downhill pretty quickly um with at one point his 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 second wife um his louis the stammerer's stepmother um absconds with the 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 treasury while they're off on campaign um and sort of abandons him and he ends up uh being buried in a barrel because the stench is so terrible from his dysentery uh but that that was a that was an ignominious end to a to a very um strong and stable reign where the Vikings were a big threat for the very first time and he, he fought them off really well and he really bolstered France's defenses. Um yeah, those are the main claims to fame that, that are in my head for him. I describe him as having the same enthusiasm and charisma as Charlemagne, because here was someone who, if you think Mm. of all the enemies he had, so first of all, he has his eldest brother, or in this case, eldest half-brother, Lothar, who rules Lotharingia and constantly wants to take over West Francia. There's Ludwig, a.k.a. Louis the German, who's in East Francia, who is also Charles' rival, starts out as an ally, then becomes his rival. Mm. He has to face the pretender, Pepin II in Aquitaine. He has Vikings attacking him in the north. He has Muslim raiders in the south. I mean, he is beset on virtually all fronts that aren't the ocean. And yet (laughs) he somehow manages to persevere and go from fighting one group to another for decades, holds on to all of them, takes Italy, 
even expands into Lotharingia and almost reunites Charlemagne's empire, but then he gets defeated at Andernach. Mm. So he is someone who, unlike a lot of leaders, he is defined by more so by his challenges than by his successes. But even yeah. then, he had so many successes. And militarily, he was very brilliant, very enthusiastic. But also, he was economically a very good manager. He was able to raise enough money and allocate enough funds to pay off Vikings, which demonstrates that he had a good management of money. He kept the Carolingian Renaissance going as best he could, although, granted, he was under enormous strain, so it wasn't nearly yeah. as much as it had been. And he also had an, an eye to the future. He was someone who he built fortified bridges all across his realm to cut yes. back on Viking attacks. He established a lifelong friendship, uh, which was sometimes contentious, but overall pretty good with Hinkmar, the Bishop of Hans. Mm. And He's really, the guy writing the, the annals as well, because that's helpful. Right. You know, you, you want to get the people writing your history to like you, but he gets this guy and he helps establish uh, Rance as being the center of Christianity, mm. at least in, in Francia again, because it had been under Clovis and his successors, but then things started to move east when Charlemagne takes over the German lands. But meanwhile, Charles really pushes for the supremacy of Hans. So yeah. he does so many things under such great strain. And it's it's hard not to like this guy. Yeah. I mean, especially especially if you've read Janet Nelson's amazing book. On I did. Him. I, it's I great. think that's uh that's that that is what won me over. Because before that, before that I didn't really know about Charles. I didn't have a very high opinion of him um necessarily because I just didn't know. Um, and his name isn't very um, inspiring. Uh, uh, similar, similar to Pep in the Short, it's like it's like really you're going to give this guy this name, not you know Charles the Fortifier or Charles the Bane of the Vikings or something like that. No, the worst the thing bold. is we don't even we don't even know if it's a joke or not because some have suggested that he was a very hairy, hairy guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of like calling someone tiny when they're a giant. Yeah, I think that. And, and also Pep in the short was apparently quite tall. So that may have been the case as well. Because um, uh, we know that we know that Charlemagne was definitely tall. Um, he, so. Yeah, a giant of a person. We still have yeah. his bones, apparently. Yeah. So yeah, it's safe to assume that Pepin was not. Uh, he was no dwarf. Um, but yeah, so do we want to say anything more on Charles the Bold? What was Charles, what would you say would be the worst thing about Charles? Because I'm trying to think, and I think maybe the worst thing was when his first wife died and he almost immediately tried to marry someone else for political reasons, which pissed off Hinkmar. But even then, I understand why he would do that. Although that was sort of a, in our current standing, that might have been something of a dickish thing to do. But, you know, it was the Middle Ages, different time. Yeah, it you was know. about it was about 10 days. But, of course, uh, Louis, the, Louis the Pious was considered to have stayed single for way too long when it took him a few months to, to remarry. 
Um, so it was definitely, it's definitely a different culture where the king is expected to have a wife. Like, I mean, queen is like the king. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, queen is like a political office. So like you need to fill, you need to fill that political office. You know, you can't just leave it vacant. So what's, do you have any, what do you think is his worst thing or does he just not have any bad features? Oh no, I think it's, I mean, I I can't really blame it because at the end, you know, the loss of the Battle of Andernach and um, the 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 uh, the German annals aren't very kind to him. They they call him cowardly and greedy and um, and you know all of the all of the all of the typical villainy traits. Um, but yeah, the the way he died was was not it was unfortunate. The way he treated his sons was unfortunate um he uh, a a series of events leads to him essentially um allowing his son carloman different carloman uh who's a monk and but he wants to be recognized as as king of aquitaine having him blinded and and then he he eventually dies um yeah so uh, yeah so not not dad of the year um he also has a, a daughter judith who gets who either elopes or gets kidnapped um, with the with Baldwin of Flanders. Um, although, of course, they then found a great dynasty. So, you know, um, swings and roundabouts, I guess. But, um, yeah, I think definitely on the... Uh, yeah, he didn't die peacefully. He wasn't the best dad. Um, I think those are the two main things I, I dock him points for. So there are some negatives, you know, not to get sidetracked, but it is really interesting to see how the Carolingians tried to be so different from the Merovingians in this respect, because the Merovingians had the traditional Germanic values of having either a primary wife and then secondary wives or concubines. So that way they could produce many, many heirs, which had the advantage Mm. that they would have a big family, a big clan but then the disadvantage that their territories would be split up. Whereas the Carolingians, they only had, they tried to stick to Christian values and have only one wife at a time, which on the one hand meant that with succession, very often only one person would inherit very often, even if there were other siblings, some of them would be sent to the church. And so, Yeah. yeah, it kept the country together but then, of course, when you don't have that many children, what happens with them is that the house ends up failing. So it is interesting to see the huge difference between those two. But we're not going to get sidetracked. <laughs> we, we already got sidetracked with our little love fest. So now we're going to go to our top two, and we better have the same ones. Who is your number two? Charles Martel. All right, good. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was not eligible for the for the for the guillotine on our podcast and he's not going through the final tournament but he gets to sit in the vip box um to watch the tournament that's what we've decided which we sort of decided in the same way that he in a way refused the crown uh we think him sort of refusing the tournament and just sort of lording it over everyone else is kind of a a poetic way to (laughs) interpret his legacy he is a truly remarkable figure, especially yeah. because he wasn't set to even inherit his house, let alone the crown. He was yes. the bastard son. 
of uh, somebody. Uh, what, sorry, yes, of the you know, it's been so long since I covered the. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I just, it's yeah. it, honestly, it, it's all just coming back to me right now. Like a lot of this is off the top of my head, but it's stuff that I haven't thought about in months. Um, I mean, I'm I'm currently researching episode for the Norman Conquest of the Mediterranean. So there you go. You know, it's yeah, been a I'm, while. I'm I, we we just we just recorded Philip Augustus, so there's oh, a lot boy. to wrap your head around there. But um, yeah, but, but, but Pep in the middle, Charles Martel's father was he. I, I think he was the he he was he was the greatest mayor of the palace until obviously Charles Martel, um, where he was around for a very long time through many many Merovingian kings, and uh, but yeah, he unfortunately he he. There were, there were there were issues with, with his his wife wanting to um, have her grandson be mayor of the palace, but then of course you have a child king and a child mayor, and how is that going to work? So yeah, Charles Martellus tries to step in. He has this war with the mayor of the palace in the other kingdom, and and with his stepmother, eventually conquers both through some really smart military maneuvers. Um, the Battle of Omblev is, I think, his his meant to be his one of his greatest victory. I mean, well, his greatest victory against Christians, I guess. Um, and then, of course, goes on to win the Battle of Tours and become this sort of icon for later Crusaders. Um, Although, ironically enough, it wasn't even the most important battle. No, in it definitely that was whole not. Fight. The most important battle was the Battle of Toulouse, which took place eleven yes. years before. But the With thing Odo was, the yeah. yeah, but Odo the Great never was able to turn that, you know, he, him and the Aquitanians did not get the same power as Charles Martel. So when Charles Martel wins what is called in English, the Battle of Tours, what the French call the Battle of Poitiers, where mm. he meets up with this Islamic army, Charles Martel takes that and he propagandizes the hell out of it and says, I just you know, pushed back this Muslim army. And so he gets to be remembered as this great figure in history. Although in fairness to him, um, he was truly an incredible military figure because first of all, first he reunites Francia, which had been divided into these various kingdoms. Hmm. Then he repulses a sizable Islamic army. I mean, it was a it was one that was capable of invasion even, or at least invading a part of the country, even though that wasn't its aim. Its aim was to acquire booty. And so he defeats this huge army. Then he goes to war in Provence because a Islamic force actually sets up and actually conquers parts of Provence. Then he goes to war and he at least makes progress in Septimania, which is this tiny little state in uh, Provence around uh, Arles and, uh, or not Arles, but uh, Narbonne. Uh, yeah, yeah, Narbonne yeah. being the capital. I think, yeah, Arles was part of, I think, the Provence when the Muslims took yeah. it. But he, he takes a bunch of territory from them. He subdues the Aquitanians. So he does so much uh, conquering and he does a lot to modernize the Frankish military and create uniform armaments so he had such an enormous impact and then aside from the military point of view there was his state management and he is the guy who figures out that you can use the church 
as essentially your arm to mm. administer the country. And that really sets the foundation for the Carolingian rule and for much of medieval Europe, to be honest, using the yeah. church. I mean, Hugh Capet is the same trick. Um, yeah. Getting the Archbishop of Rennes on his side. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, Charles Martel is who the Carolingians are named after. They don't get their name from Charlemagne. They get their name from Charles Martel. Um, so I think that's definitely a big point in his favor. Uh, the fact that this entire episode is only called the Carolingians because he, he was called Charles. Um, and of course, right up to the modern day, we now have a king called Charles, um, at least in my country. So that, you know, that legacy definitely shows itself in ways that we don't even realize. Yeah, I'm very thankful that you finally managed to make your way through that queue after waiting for two, three days or something to see the Queen and you could make it to this episode. I'm sure it <laughs> uh, was mind blowing. Yeah, well, I'm I, I well, I'm in I'm in Edinburgh where uh, uh, she was lying in state here. So and then the queues queues went all long. I didn't I didn't go. I I, I ended up just watching it on TV, but. Um, it was quite something to have uh, to have a monarch die in, in Scotland. I bet it certainly was. Mm. Uh, here is hoping that your Charles can measure up slightly, although hopefully he doesn't go into battle <laughs> as much as uh, Charles Martel. Hopefully so, he's not like the, the French Charles III, who would be Charles the Simple. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> we can only wait. So now moving on to our number one, I think it was obvious even yeah. before we did the episode that it has to be Charlemagne. Mm. I mean, do you want me to do you want me to just go through what his scores are um, in our various? So in in the Enchanté round, which is like visual legacy, you know, the fame of his name, all that sort of thing, he got a twenty out of twenty. Mm. Um, in On Guard, which is uh, how how much he he uh how well he does at war and, and all that sort of and gaining personal power he got he he, he did get a 19.5 um because i think i marked him down for the the uh the spanish um expedition that didn't go well the battle but, of uh, pass where the yeah. right where it was... even then like he spun it and it became the song of roland so you know it's it's a defeat in a way, but yeah. But anyway, so yeah, in in, in voulez-vous, uh, you know how well he governs. He got an eighteen. I think we marked him down slightly for anti-Semitism, the, the usual stuff, um, and uh, there was something else, uh, but I can't quite remember. Ulala let him down. He he only got an eight because he wasn't as scandalous as he could have been. <laughs> um, but then of course he reigned for forty-five years, so. He got a Vion Thrones, and he had four children, so he got a Vion Thrones score of fifteen. So that's eighty-one, which which is by far the highest that we've ever had. So ever since then, our kings have been cursed to follow Charlemagne. I mean, pretty much. I've said that in terms of consequential figures, at least political figures, he was the most consequential political figure since Augustus in European mm. history and probably would be until Napoleon Bonaparte. Just yeah. a giant of a figure. I mean, if, if Augustus set up the Roman Empire and Napoleon 
smashed the old feudal Europe, then Charlemagne is the one who he sets the stage for medieval Europe. It's He's really creating the customs, the divisions of society that are so important for Europe yeah. uh, in terms of, I mean, I probably, I know that most people are probably going to say his military conquest or his, his most notable thing. Maybe they are. I mean, he, he was truly incredible. He conquers Germania, Northern Italy, Southern Denmark, Northeastern Spain, and he makes vassals of a lot of territories on his Eastern borders, uh, not to, you know, and other places as well. But for me, I think maybe the biggest accomplishment is the Carolingian Renaissance, which is yeah. one of the greatest expansions in culture, science, art, religion uh, in centuries, you know, since the Roman Empire. So he truly is this giant of a figure. Mm. And we finally get written sources, which is lovely. <laughs> yeah, no, there was, I think I, I forget exactly what it was, but um. I mean, I won't remember the exact statistic, but I think in a hundred years of Carolingian rule, there's something like, I don't know, nine times as many sources as mm. all remaining Merovingian sources, something ridiculous. So that probably more than that. Yeah. Makes a lot You'll have of to sense. go back and listen to all of my episodes. To, <laughs> to find that said. tidbit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, please go sorry. on. I mean, when it come, I mean, when it comes to rating Charlemagne, it's more just like, I mean, like I did before with the Ronsonry part, like it's more about like nitpicking little things than, you know, summarizing all of it because there's so much that happens. Um, and what's remarkable... I mean, way, yeah, please go on. I mean, just the way that he became Roman emperor, it, it, it was very similar to the way that his dad became... Uh, the king of france where it was just a it was just a a, a ingenious maneuvering of his his sort of um he played his cards so right is, is basically what i'm what i'm trying to say in, in every conceivable way and what's incredible yeah and it's both part genius part luck that mm. so much of what he set out to do ended up working. So for example, yeah. he has that marriage to Desiderata in order to give him strength in Italy, but then pushes her aside and yet still manages to retain power because he is a both a competent, he's competent and he is uh, genteel enough that mm. when a couple Lombard nobles decide to rise up against him. All of the umber, other Lombard nobles just say, oh, we're not with those guys. You should probably do something <laughs> about them. We're totally on board with you. He, yeah, yeah he was just so successful. And he, uh, not only that, but he had this huge vision for the future, building roads and canals and really creating even new cities. I mean, let's keep in mind that Aachen, which becomes mm. this incredible palace, uh, a marvel at its time, before he arrived, it was pretty much just a field. So yeah. one thing that I compared him is, 
I compared him to Augustus. And, you know, Augustus famously said that I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. Well, Charlemagne wasn't as accomplished as, as Augustus in that regard, but he could say that he found Ock in a field and made it a palace. So yeah. he, he, uh, he might not have risen as high as Augustus, but from where he started, it's incredible what he accomplished. Mm. I mean, he he became a successor to Augustus in a way. So I guess in, in a sense, he did rise as high and that he became the quote unquote Roman emperor. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was right place for right time. Even the Roman emperor thing, it was only because the empire had this anomaly where they had a, a, a female emperor, Empress Irene. That was the right, only- Right, to be clear, the Byzantine of, empire, which claimed yes. the Roman empire's mantle- Yes, the uh, yeah, yeah, Eastern Roman. I, I'm, I've been listening to too many podcasts where they refer to it as the Roman Empire because they're like, no, it's a continuation. Um, but uh, yes, the Byzantine Empire. But yeah, a lot of it. You're right. A lot of it was luck. It was sort of right, right place, right time. But he was, he was the right man for the place and time. So you know, can't blame him for that. I'm. I definitely agree that he wasn't that scandalous i think maybe the most scandalous thing and perhaps i might be wrong but he i think married at one point married a very very young girl i think he was in his 40s and she was 13 or maybe even Mm. 12 or something i don't know if that i the thing though is what i was going to say is that that might have been that might be scandalous for now he might get me too'd if he came to the present (laughs) But in that time, it was not a very scandalous thing. I mean, actually, I, and this adds a bit of complexity to it. He was actually quite, um, I'm, I'm not going to say feminist because, he, he, you know, no one was a feminist back then. But he, but he apparently gave his, gave his daughters, uh, gave his wife a lot of sort of, um, sort of advisory roles and, and, and say in what happened, at least at court, sort of domestically at court. Um, and, uh, when Louis comes in, he sort of does away with all of that. He says, no, 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 that I'm sending my sisters off to Abby's and they're no longer allowed to have these rumors of extramarital affairs. And, and, um, yeah, but Charlemagne, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, it, it's really interesting because he didn't want to marry off his daughters because, uh, he'd seen what had happened with some of his aunts, um, getting married off to, um, various dukes. And then that becoming a reason for those dukes to sort of rise up and say, well, I could be the heir then because I'm descended from whoever. And uh, so Charlemagne sort of kept um, kept them close and just sort of allowed them to fulfill a very, sort of a, a different sort of role um, in the royal household, which is really interesting. And um, then in one of his last campaigns, he reportedly had an elephant attack vikings if that isn't interesting enough (laughs) yes that that is pretty amazing uh so yeah i mean i i suppose we could talk all day about charlemagne but there's clearly a reason why he's our number one it's why he has the great in his name because Mm. charlemagne uh, charlemagne literally means charles the great 
So yeah, I'm glad that we could at least agree on this. I would be mm. blown away if you chose Charles the Simple as your number one or something. <laughs> Were you worried about that at some point? I I was not worried. <laughs> I I suspected that Charlemagne might have been yeah. number one. I had hoped so. So I have he's, uh, he's also he's also the only one we have given a two part episode to so far. Oh, um, I gave him. I think it was four or five. So yeah, we've yeah. been trying to we've been trying to keep it uh, concise. Uh, but uh, Philip Augustus, who's our next episode to come out, uh, will also be getting a two parter. He's the he's the first person since Charlemagne to get a two parter. So well, in that case, that. I very much look forward to ranking the Capetians with you. It might take me a little longer. I as covering hopefully all of French history to at least some degree. I've been yes. do, I've been a bit slow recently, but whenever I get on that horse, people can look forward, hopefully, to us covering the Capetians. I want to mm. thank you very much for giving us your time. This has been fantastic, Ben, and I hope everyone checks out your podcast, A Battle Royale, which I will include links to. Uh, thanks very much, Gary. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, enchanté. Enchanté. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.